0: We want to know, how can spirituality transform our social movements? And how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, spirituality for revolution. And welcome to The Rising,
1: Spirituality
0: for Revolution. I'm Chelsea McMillan. And I'm Rebecca Burnt. We're spiritual
1: directors exploring the intersection of spirituality and activism. So Chelsea, I've been thinking a lot lately about nonviolence. I come from, because of my background, both in my spirituality and in the activist circles that I've been a part of, I have a deep belief in the power of nonviolence, and part of that is because I've read people like the theologian Walter Wink, who writes about nonviolence from a Christian perspective, and I've also been exposed to what is called sometimes strategic or tactical nonviolence, which is all about the actual real practical case for nonviolence. I don't think that nonviolence doesn't mean that there's no confrontation or conflict or anything like that. And I think it requires a tremendous amount of strength and fortitude and groundedness and support in order to engage in it. But one of the things that I've been kind of wondering about in the wake of Charlottesville is seeing how we're finally realizing that there are these really um, kind of terrifying forces at work in the world right now um, that white supremacy and neo-Nazism are actually gaining some traction. And we saw that at Charlottesville and there are people who are very willing to engage in violence. And I was seeing a lot of my friends on social media, people who are uh, clergy and activists and people who are generally believe in nonviolence and would say that they're committed to it, sort of questioning their commitment to it or questioning the utility of it and saying like, well, you know, after Charlottesville, I'm not sure that we shouldn't make space for people who are willing to engage in violence. And and if it hadn't been for um, Antifa and Black bo- Black willing to actually fight against these people uh, and keep us safe, keep the people who were nonviolent safe, then there could have been even worse casualties. Um, I'm not sure that I agree with that, but it's given me food for thought. And so I've just been wanting to sort of like talk to somebody who's deeper, um, has a deeper understanding and grounding in nonviolent strategy and principles and uh, praxis than I do. Yeah, so that's kind of what I've been wondering lately.
0: Yeah, I, I resonate with a lot of what you've been saying. I was really surprised after Charlottesville when I saw so many. Um, of my progressive friends on social media saying things like, you know, fuck Nazis. I would punch a Nazi, you know, die Nazi scum, (laughs) like things that I was like, wow, that's really not nonviolence. And, um, but is there a place for that? You know, is that right? Like, I don't know if I could, you know, welcome a Nazi into my home, you know, or into my sort of circle of acceptance, but isn't that kind of what nonviolence is about You know, I think it's like um, this really complex concept and maybe not just even concept, but like embodiment. Like, how do we how do we really embody this philosophy of nonviolence? Uh, And also something that's come up is like, is nonviolence a privilege? Like if we're like, I'm a white person, like I'm not under threat of violence every single day of my life. It's easy for me to say. Oh la la la! I'm nonviolent. I'm just going to sit here and meditate and and not doing any, do anything. Um, yeah, I, I, I've just been finding out more and more that being nonviolent isn't really a clear cut way of being. That it's it's sort of a daily practice of um, of holding a lot of complexity and.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, so we've been really swirling around some of these same questions and um, and thought also, like, what is nonviolence? Like, that's something that's sort of tossed around a lot. And I don't know that um, people really know what that that means even, yeah. you know.
1: I think a lot of people think it just means, like, it's the power of love. Yeah. <laughs> it's like sprinkling fairy dust over everything right. <laughs> and making it magically better. Right, and
0: that I'll just... I'll just uh, march in the women's march and and we'll like change Trump's mind about everything, (laughs) you know, you know, but there are, you know, uh, we'll talk today about some effective um, examples of nonviolence.
1: Yeah, there are like really actually amazing stories of nonviolence working. Um, not because it's magical fairy dust, but because it's like very, there's a a lot of like research and data to show show that there are some of these nonviolent tactics that really can truly affect change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, One thing I wanted to uh, say was um, some people will argue that, uh, because there's like this kind of whole debate between nonviolence as a philosophy and nonviolence as a as strictly strategical like you talked about. Mm-hmm. I don't know if strategical is a word. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me if it isn't. Um, uh, what about strategery? Strategery, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that from that great example of nonviolence. Um, so but so some people will argue that Gandhi was an example, you know, he was um, he used nonviolence because it was much more effective you know, because his followers, the Indians, did not have any resources, really. So of course they weren't going to crush the British Empire. Um, so they had to tap into something that um, that would be effective. You know, something that that lots of guns and tanks don't really provide you access to, which is what Gandhi called truth force or love force, which is which we'll hear more about today. So. Anyway, so that's all to say today that we um, are bringing on uh, someone who has a lot of knowledge about uh, nonviolence and and writes about it uh, pretty much almost every day. I just happened to be at a birthday party a couple of weeks ago. And was talking about nonviolence with this guy and talking about a lot of these things that we've been talking about. And it just so happens that he is one of the co-founding editors of wagingnonviolence.org and writes about this kind of stuff. So um, we're really excited to welcome Eric Stoner to our show today.
1: Cool. Very
0: serendipitous. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> Today's guest is Eric Stoner. Eric is a co-founding editor at WagingNonviolence.org and an adjunct professor at Rutgers University. His articles have appeared in The Guardian, Mother Jones, Salon, The Nation, Sojourners, and In These Times. Welcome, Eric. Thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me.
0: We'd really love to start off just hearing about how you came to activism uh, through nonviolence and, and sort of what your story is around this topic today.
2: Sure. Yeah. I uh, I think I actually have a pretty unusual path to to nonviolence. I'm uh, originally from small town Illinois, which is is pretty conservative, and uh, my I grew up in a kind of a conservative family and community and church, and uh, wasn't ever really exposed to another way of looking at the world. And uh, when I I, I went to college. I, I studied kind of political science and international relations. And because of kind of my limited exposure to to other ways of of looking at the world, I I, I was quite conservative myself. And went to um, Washington D.C. to do my first internship. Uh, and I was actually working in the in the world of private intelligence or private security. Oh wow! Um, so. <laughs> on a very different track, um, and uh, it just so happened that to, to get credit for this program in college, I uh, had to take a course while I was there, and for whatever reason, I think it was obviously meant to be, I, I ended up signing up for a class called Solutions to Violence or Alternatives to Violence. And it just struck me because I, I realized that I didn't know hardly anything about that, and all the other options were more kind of traditional political science type courses. And so I guess I was just intrigued by it and uh, signed up. and it it happened to be taught by uh, a guy named Coleman McCarthy who is kind is kind of like,
1: He's a Washington Post columnist. I used to I yeah, yeah.
2: He was for about thirty years. He had a regular column, and uh, and now he's kind of a legendary, I think, figure in the world of peace education, mm-hmm. and teaches still all over D.C. Uh, from kind of some of the most difficult or rundown kind of high schools to the, the prisons to you know Georgetown Law. So kind of across the whole spectrum he's teaching these types of courses and in, in nonviolence, and um is really just an incredible teacher and and so I, I I stumbled into his class and uh I was really defensive at first um and uh but as as that as the the time went along I I was just so moved by the stories that I was hearing and realized that there was this whole other way of kind of possibly being in the world and uh, that I just uh, didn't think was possible really Um, and so kind of by by the end of that that summer uh, I felt very conflicted you know about my path and uh, really felt like my heart was just calling me to go a different direction and that I wanted to kind of go deeper into what I had been exposed to—these stories of, of nonviolence and, and different peacemakers—and and so you know when I got back to college, I just kind of did a deep dive into kind of the the writings and lives of of Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Tolstoy and all these figures and the The more I read, the more I, I was kind of convinced that this was kind of what I wanted to dedicate my life to and kind of do if I could um, for other folks what what Coleman had done for me in terms of, yeah, just opening my eyes to this whole other way of of looking at the world and kind of showing that uh, violence isn't isn't necessary really that I, I guess I maybe from my own personal experience, I, I think that most people support violence or things that are really problematic in the world, injustices, not, not because it's intentional as much as out of kind of ignorance to possible alternatives. Um, and I felt like that at least was my experience. And you know, I feel like just learning about these kind of incredible stories of, of nonviolence throughout history you know, really do show that there is, is another way. And so, so yeah, I was just very inspired by that experience. And it was kind of a, I had a a kind of a conversion experience, I guess, um, that summer and was just on fire. And, uh, after that, you know, it kind of drove me down this path and, and, uh, it took me a long time to figure out exactly what that would look like. Um, like I I knew that I didn't want to do, what I was doing, you know, that I couldn't continue down that that path that I was on, but I didn't know exactly what it would mean or what it would look like to work for peace and justice. And so it took me years to kind of then figure out exactly where I fit into the, the big picture. But uh, yeah, it was that experience that kind of set me down this path.
0: That sounds so powerful. and And I'm curious to know too, like how, it kind of, um, you know, is related to your own spiritual path, you know, is it, does that play in at all?
2: Definitely. Yeah. I, like I said, I grew up in a kind of a traditional Catholic household and church. And, um, you know, I realized up until that point, it didn't, I I didn't really live it in any really meaningful way. You know, Um, it was more maybe cultural, you know, in terms of going to church on Sunday and that kind of thing, but not thinking about my faith much beyond that, and uh, when I took that course, uh, the teacher wasn't explicitly speaking from a place of faith, but a lot of the readings and people that we were studying obviously were, were coming at it from uh, different faith traditions, and so it did speak to me very much on that level, and I started to understand, or my understanding of what it meant to be Christian or Catholic started to shift, and I started to see it more as about, you know, being on the side of those who are on the margins and struggling and uh, trying to really live out those very basic ethical teachings in the Bible. And when I looked at what I was doing with my life, you know, I was essentially protecting the interests of the most wealthy and powerful corporations and people in the world. And so yeah. I felt like, wow, I'm, I'm really on the wrong side of things, you know, if I look at uh, just what I'm kind of doing with my life and, and I, need to, I need to make a decision essentially like, you know, does my faith actually mean something to me or is it just something that uh, kind of makes me feel good? And if it is something that is really meaningful and this is my new understanding of what it is, then I I really do have to change because what I'm doing is just not consistent with the way that I'm now understanding what it means to kind of follow Jesus or or follow that path. Um, So there was kind of like this point where I just felt like it was a crossroads and I had to choose. And I guess I was just so inspired in that moment that I felt like, despite not knowing what was down that new path that I just had to, to take a leap, you know, and, and see where it would take me. So yeah, it was very much tied into my faith. And, and the first few years that I was kind of uh, exploring nonviolence and speaking about nonviolence and getting involved in, in the movement, I was very much coming at it from this lens of kind of Christian nonviolence. And uh, so it was kind of like my my primary lens for how I was understanding um, what I was doing and, and what nonviolence is and means.
0: Well, I was going to um, maybe sort of ask, like, what does nonviolence mean? Because I That's think what that I was going to ask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that there's sort of this like oh, yeah, that just means peace, right? Like, just means, like, pacifism or whatever, but...
1: Yeah, or it means, like, if we just put out enough warm fuzzies in the world and, like, really love people, (laughs) then it will magically transform everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh,
2: I mean, nonviolence is a tough word, I think. There isn't kind of one agreed-upon definition, which I think is is problematic. Um, And I think people that are critical of it often misunderstand it or, you know, portray it as kind of being synonymous with with not doing anything in the face of injustice or passivity or that kind of thing. And, and uh, whereas my understanding of it is that it, it in its very nature, it implies that you have to take action against injustice and violence, that that's mm-hmm. kind of at its core. So it's not, it's not just not being violent. But it's actively kind of resisting opposing violence and doing what you can to, to kind of right wrongs, but not being uh, willing to stoop to that level of using violence in, in return, right, or or threatening violence. So yeah, it's a tough word to really to make sense of. And, and people in this world have often tried to figure out alternatives because even... Even that understanding of it is more defining nonviolence by what it isn't, right, than what it is. And so, you know, that's why you you have why Gandhi, you know, made an effort to kind of come up with a new term, um, which he called satyagraha, which is a a Sanskrit word, and he used that to describe nonviolence for the rest of his life and at one point he kind of defined it as like the force that is that comes from truth and love mm. um, so it's like a force you know an active kind of force that, but it's of kind of pitting your whole body and soul and love you know against an injustice right so I kind of I think it's important to always make the point that it's, it's something that's very active right that it's not just not uh, using violence
1: mm-hmm. and let me ask you because I think one of the things I, I've been exposed to a lot of like teaching or literature or whatever about nonviolence, violence both um, from like the sort of moral principled perspective that you're talking about but also from like a strategic and tactical perspective of why it actually helps achieve results when it's used as part of a larger strategy for social change and, you know, listening to some of the debates um, in the wake of Charlottesville especially and seeing people confronted with really sort of these terrifying um, images of a reawakened neo-Nazi um, white supremacist uh, force that, that is very willing to be violent in a lot of ways. I've heard a lot of people who, Normally would say that they're nonviolent or that they believe in nonviolence start to question whether nonviolence is enough and whether whether that's something that is just for people who are privileged, who aren't living under the threat um, of racism and. And things like that every day. And I'm wondering what you would say to those people. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I think it is, that's a really important question, and definitely one that's like very, you know, kind of present in, in the activist world right now and in the media. Even among my own kind of uh, friends, you know, here in New York and in general, there's a lot of uh, support uh, for Antifa and, and the Black Bloc and those types of groups that are. Kind of willing to use violence, right, against uh, this kind of rise of, of white supremacy and and neo-Nazi groups, like you said. Um, and yeah, I just I we we've published a series of stories on on waging nonviolence that have kind of tried to to pick apart uh, a lot of the reasoning and arguments that are often used uh, to kind of defend. Um, that approach by a guy named Kazu Haga, which I would, who I'd really recommend reading. Um, he's done a series over the last few uh, months. Um, but yeah, I think it's important just to 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 realize that I think it's, you know, again, often when you see these arguments, um, it's portrayed as it's either violent confrontation or doing nothing, or that it's essentially that your ideas alone will win. And there's not ever an alternative that's presented where you are actively resisting, but doing so with, with nonviolent means. And, you know, I think, you know, when you look at the, the history of nonviolence, you see that that in in many cases, I mean, maybe in most cases, nonviolent movements are led by some of the most disempowered, you know, oppressed people around the world against some of the most violent, harshest forces, including fascist powers, you know, around the world. Um, So there's actually a a rich history, right, of nonviolent organizing and movements that have confronted these forces successfully in the past. And um, it's important to kind of um, remember that, right? And to study those stories because it's often portrayed as, as it's either violence or nothing again, which I think is a false kind of dichotomy. So for example, I, I did my master's thesis in part on how nonviolence um, was used during World War II against kind of the original uh, Nazis and, and kind of the fascist forces in Europe at the time. And uh, this is just a history that is, is basically excluded, you know, from our history books and from our kind of common understanding of that war, because, you know, World War II has been used in such a propagandistic way to kind of uh, defend or promote war ever since. And it has to be portrayed in this completely black and white way where uh, there wasn't ever an alternative. But... in in reality, there there were a number of really powerful stories and examples, you know, from that time of nonviolent movements that rose up around Europe that were largely successful. Uh, For example, in in Denmark, um, there was kind of a spontaneous movement to defend and protect their Jewish population after orders came down to to round them up and, and deport them to concentration camps. And Essentially, almost their entire uh, Jewish population survived the war because ordinary people stood up and took them into their homes and created a network to hide them and to help them escape the country. Um, uh, this happened in other places as well, like Finland and Bulgaria. There was a, a really interesting uh, kind of powerful movement that also protected you know, much of the Jewish population. And one of my favorite stories was actually from this small uh, French village of Les Chambon that uh, it was more a case of of kind of Christian nonviolence where a pastor um, came to town who uh, was very committed to nonviolence and kind of built a culture in the town of nonviolent resistance. And essentially during the war, they kind of decided to become a safe haven and took in several thousand Jews Um, and protected them throughout the course of the war. And this was um, done kind of right in the the face of the Nazis who had set up camp in the middle of town. And it's just like this incredible story of of resistance uh, over the course of a number of years that was very intentional and coming from a place of faith. So, you know, to think back under a, a situation that was, I think, far more extreme than what we're dealing with right now, even though it's, you know, there are hints of that obviously with what's happening, you know, right now, you see that nonviolent, non-violent action was actually surprisingly successful. Um, but it's it's unfortunate that that those stories are just widely kind of, of not known. And so I think we have to do more to kind of study that history to show that that it really is a very powerful force that can't work even against the most extreme kind of opponents.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing to me how so many of these stories are just not in our in our common school curriculum. And uh, I mean, it's more than unfortunate, you know, it's just like, terrible that we don't have more of these stories, because we've just created this culture of violence. And and like you said earlier, when you were sort of telling your story, it's like, so many of us think that that violence is necessary you know, and and so it's unfortunate to me that people like Antifa and and the Blacklock are sort of like playing into the hands of the oppressors. You know what I mean? Like by by choosing violent means. And I don't think and this is not against Antifa at all. I mean, I think that there's a lot of effective work. You know, I, I can't speak enough to to that whole thing. So I'm not going to like say yay or nay. But um Another thing I'm thinking about, too, is that nonviolence is so hard. It's so difficult, you know, like for Martin Luther King to stand up on stage and let someone attack him, you know what I mean? Like, it's fucking hard. (laughs) (laughs) So no wonder people aren't choosing it because it's like, we don't know how to do that. You know, we don't know how to love the oppressor, which is really part of radical nonviolence is like how, you know, something we've talked about in... Um, some of the sacred activism classes I've taught is how, how big can we draw our circle of love? Like, can our circle of love include Nazis and, you know, Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell, <laughs> you know? And like, how transformative could it be if, if we were sort of to turn that, that, that love force mm-hmm. uh, toward them rather than sort of use their own tools of violent oppression? You know.
2: yeah I think it's extremely difficult and, and uh, you know that that's why it's it's not often even tried or, or experimented with but I ultimately think that this is really the only way to <laughs> to, to change or to, to kind of affect real change. And uh, you know one of the stories that I've been inspired by in this kind of moment is, is the story um, the stories that are coming from this group called Life After Hate? I'm not sure if you've if you've heard of them, but it's a group of kind of former members of these white supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups, who have decided to 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 leave and 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 change their ways, and um, and then they actually actively try to uh, kind of pull people out of these groups. And in in recent interviews, uh, there was an interview on the intercept with one of the leaders and he was also on democracy now, uh, recently, you know, he basically says that the way that they do it is, is through empathy, right. And through actually approaching these folks as kind of heinous as their ideas are as, as human beings and to, to try to understand, uh, You know, kind of what's more at the core of of their their problem, why they've been attracted to this, and that often um, what it comes down to is kind of exposing them to the folks that they uh, hate. You know, uh, so he he talked about setting up dinners between uh, members of these groups and Muslim families, for example, right, where they actually get to sit down and and talk and get to know each other. And, uh, that oftentimes kind of relationship, you know, putting people in connection can be so powerful that, you know, after having those experiences, they're not able to hold on to, um, those kind of hateful ideas or opinions about them because they, they begin to see them as human as well. And, and so that really it's only through, um, this kind of approach that they've been able to, to get members of these groups to kind of reconsider their path and to to leave and and do something different with their lives and that essentially he you know really wasn't familiar with any example of of violence um, or being confronted kind of in a really hostile way with getting uh, folks to kind of reconsider their path um, and so I think that's important you know that maybe you know having a really confrontational you know, or, or violent kind of approach might feel good or productive in the moment. But that this really ultimately isn't how you get someone to kind of reconsider their worldview and, and to, to be open to change.
1: I want to maybe just gently push back on something a little bit or just present a, a different viewpoint. And I say this as someone who is committed to nonviolence and really believes in nonviolence. But I worry sometimes that Um, when we talk a lot and, and yes, I believe in the power of love and connection and empathy, but I worry sometimes that when we um, have so much messaging around that, and that's what we talk about a lot, like just widening the circle of love to like include the oppressor that a lot of times I think we have, and I I personally feel that this is part of the legacy, uh, although I am a Christian, I think this is part of the legacy of maybe Bad Christianity. Um, But Christianity, uh, as we've experienced it a lot, is that there's this, um, there's a little bit of spiritual bypassing that occurs because I think that the truth is in love, there's always room for truth, which includes anger and conflict. And to me, love is really about learning how to engage those things in a really in a healthy and truthful and honest way. Um, and I see sometimes that there's this kind of, um, when when people who believe in nonviolence get together, sometimes there can be a, a diminishment or dismissal or um, invalidating people's very legitimate anger and pain. And that a lot of times there's reasons people don't feel like they're just like not in a place where they can go and say, I'm going to bravely and nonviolently lay my body on the line to fight for this. Like, I can't do that right now. And um, I'm just wondering, how do we create space for that within nonviolence? Like, how do we create space for people to be able to, like, feel their feelings and, you know, not to necessarily um, get stuck in them, but but to. To honor and respect them, and to say that, yeah, it's not. We, I might believe in this ideal of loving my oppressor, but maybe I just can't do it right now. Like I'm just not in that place where I can do it. Yeah, that's a that's
2: a great question. Um, I think you're you're right in the way that sometimes those feelings can be maybe not appreciated or, or dismissed in these circles, and and that and that definitely anger and and pain and suffering are. Uh, are very real, and we need to to acknowledge them. And and you know, ultimately, I, I feel like not everyone will or or can use nonviolence, or, or or maybe they're like you said, they're not able or willing in the moment to to try to live that out. And and uh, you know, and I think folks need to choose what's right for them. You know, I can't dictate how someone. Is ultimately going to resist, um, and I don't know how I would react in in really extreme scenarios. You know, I, what I try to do is is just do what I can to educate myself and prepare myself so that I will hopefully, if I were in a situation of kind of extreme violence where I was really in danger, um, where I would have that kind of knowledge internalized and 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 hopefully hopefully live that out but you know no one knows in the moment and um, you know I think all I can do is try to talk about why I think it's it's you know also going to be the, the most effective path right or, or tool to achieving their ultimate ends mm-hmm. you know that you know what worked for me was a combination of that, that faith-based kind of approach and the more kind of strategic or pragmatic kind of understanding of nonviolence so that it's not seen as something that is just sacrificial or suicidal, you know, where you are throwing yourself into this evil Mm -hmm. or into this situation where, you know, there are no, Chances that this is going to work, right? But that actually, from everything that I've read and studied, that by following this path, I believe that you're going to have the best odds or the best chances of actually, kind of achieving what you are, are are struggling for, and and that's also why I, I feel like I have embraced and promote nonviolence, right? Because I, I want to, I want, to to see this rise of, of fascism and white supremacy squashed the folks that are involved with Antifa or yeah. the black bloc do. I think there's a lot of like affinity there in our ultimate kind of aim, you know, or goal. We don't want a society with these kind of forces run loose, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I really do deeply believe that a nonviolent kind of path is, is going to to be the surest way that we get there. And and not that it will always work. It's not a silver bullet. <laughs> Maybe that's the wrong metaphor. Or, uh, you know, kind of a, a solution that always works. But violence also doesn't always work. And I, I, you know, I feel like this is this is yeah, all that I can can kind of do.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that.
0: And I don't think I'm really glad what you said, uh, Rebecca, because I think it's important to Again, realize that nonviolent resistance or nonviolence isn't just like sitting and meditating and loving your oppressor. It's like love can be fierce, you know. And and we've certainly seen so many examples of nonviolent resistors who who were super effective in in creating change uh, because they were fierce and they they used that fierce anger and you know to to fuel their their movements, you know. And I wonder, too, if um, Eric, maybe you could give us a little primer of like some other, you know, I I think that MLK and Gandhi are often lifted up as examples of people who are leaders of nonviolence. But who are some other, you know, if someone wanted to look into this, who are some other figures to look into?
2: Um, Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, I guess there's different folks in particular that might be recommended depending on whether you're coming at it from a place of faith or more from like a strategic approach. Um, You know, I guess for me, I I don't think so much about individual people as movements and stories. And um, so for me, I think what was really impactful was just reading about such a diverse array of uh, stories of kind of successful nonviolent movements around the world that had, have kind of, yeah, confronted some of the most vicious kind of brutal um, regimes and, and been successful in the face of it. So, you know, you can look um, really around the world, you know, there's a whole string of nonviolent movements in Latin America, you know, that overthrew dictatorships and military regimes that, you know, were supported Often by the U.S. government uh, during the time, like in 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 Chile with Pinochet or the military regime in Argentina, and uh, you know you had this incredible story of you know the mothers of the Plaza del Mayo, who were mothers whose sons or husbands had been disappeared uh, by the military regime, who kind of came out demanding to know where they. Uh, where they were. And um, even though there was this assumption that they they really had been killed, these, these women came out for years kind of protesting in front of the the presidential palace and kind of eventually led to a, a growing movement that overthrew the, the regime in, in Argentina. Um, you have the story of the kind of largely nonviolent movement in South Africa you know, that, that uh, eventually won out against uh, the kind of racist apartheid regime there. You have um, stories like the, uh, the people power movement in the Philippines, right, that overthrew, again, a U.S.-backed dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, in the 80s. And then a story that gets a lot of attention more recently has, is the, the movement in, in Serbia, um, called OPOR, which was kind of a student-led movement that, over the course of a couple of years, built kind of a, a, a mass movement that uh, was very creative and used a lot of kind of ingenious tactics and humor uh, to to overthrow Slobodan Milosevic, who you know was kind of a, a, a brutal kind of you know ruler who had launched a number of wars and been involved with ethnic cleansing and and uh, they were successfully able to, to kind of oust him through a nonviolent movement. Uh, and then, you know, apart from like that kind of international, uh, those international stories, I think one of the things that has inspired me has been, you know, just kind of re-understanding American history in a new light, you know, where when you look back at, you know, basically all the things that we have today that are uh, kind of we think of as kind of advancements uh, or kind of progress that we've made—it's uh, almost always been the result of kind of nonviolent organizing and nonviolent movements, from the abolition of slavery and and the women's suffrage and the fact that children still aren't working in in factories and you know the civil rights movement and the kind of LGBT movement and, you know, kind of on and on, um, you you just see this really rich history of nonviolent movements in this country, which have given us kind of everything I think that we have that is good (laughs) today. And, you know, those things are currently obviously being threatened, um, but uh, there are kind of really impressive movements on the ground that are working to defend and expand those victories. So, um, so yeah, I guess I, I, I look more at, at movements than people.
1: And I, I appreciate you saying that. Cause I think we have this Western frame that we've kind of been handed that teaches us to look at, um, history as a series of like, like great individuals, and and let's be honest, usually great men Mm. (laughs) that have, have like sort of risen up as heroes and leaders that um, then change the world in some ways. And it really is, it's always a community of people together that are working for whatever change, like nobody can do any of this alone. And, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about the role and value of communities of practice and support and relationship in helping to achieve victories and also helping to sort of maintain um, the principles and values of nonviolence? I think I think
2: community is extremely important. Uh, I mean, it has been for me personally. Um, you know, when I first came around to this, this way of, of thinking, I, I, at first felt very alone, you know, I didn't know kind of anyone that thought like me, my friends or family. And I kind of at times wondered if I was crazy, you know, like, why, why am I the only person who's thinking like this or, or really trying to take these teachings of of Jesus, like seriously. Um, And it was tough. I think this is often the case for activists more generally, even if they're not, coming from a place of faith, right? That society kind of wants you to feel alone and kind of atomized. And in that way, it kind of keeps us from realizing our potential or power. And for me, you know, I, I slowly started to find different communities um, that uh, were like-minded and where we could get together and build kind of relationships and and community and support each other and love each other and, and organize actions together. And, and it was really only in finding those groups where I, I realized that, you know, that I could do this, you know. Um, And uh, I, I feel like, especially given the fact that, you know, doing this kind of work is, is for the long haul, you know, we're not going to see a complete and total victory on on these issues ever and even when we do achieve victories they're they're always going to be challenged and they're always you know the kind of the the, st- the, the system is always going to be trying to kind of roll those back we, we we have to stay mobilized and the only way we can really do that I think is is with other people and, and having kind of communities that are really there for each other and, and kind of supporting and loving each other and, and giving you that space to, to grow and to feel like you're part of something greater, you know, um, and not kind of a, a lone warrior, you know. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's like really, really critical. Um, yeah, it definitely has been for me. I'm sure I wouldn't be still doing this had I not connected with um, different communities um, uh, over the years. Mm. When I first got to New York, I was living in this community of of Jesuit priests in the Upper West Side, and one of the folks who I was living with was Daniel Berrigan, who was kind of a Mm -hmm. a, a well-known, you know, figure in the (laughs) anti-war movement, Um, and I had had read about him and, you know, was actually reading a biography of, of him and his brother at the time, and, you know, it was like getting to, to have dinner with him one of those first couple, uh, weeks, you know, we, we made plans to kind of go out, uh, for a walk and, uh, go to central park. And, and, uh, on that first walk, I, I kind of asked him how he had has stuck with this, you know, he, he was, I think 85 at the time, you know, and had been doing this for 50 years. And, and he was just like community. You know, you you absolutely have to have community. You cannot do it without that. And otherwise the, the forces are too big, you know, and they will crush you and you just won't be able to kind of maintain your oppositional posture, you know, resistance. So I think, you know, at the time I didn't really understand what he meant when he said that because I hadn't had community yet at that point and only in living with them, Uh, for a year, and then finding other communities and kind of the Catholic worker. And there was another um, community called Kairos here in New York, which was a faith-based kind of community that um, Dan had started back in the 70s and had been going strong for 40 years and is still around. um, That kind of got together every month and planned actions and kind of were there for each other. Um, it was only in, in, in kind of connecting with those types of groups that I, I felt kind of at peace and felt like I, I, I could do this for the long haul. Wow.
1: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I was going to ask if maybe you had any resources for people who would like to learn more about nonviolence, both the principles and the practice and the sort of like, um, tactics and all of that stuff. If you have any right resources you'd like to recommend? Yeah,
2: um, there has really been like, a, you know, ex- I think, a, an explosion of resources in the last few years around the topic, which is, is wonderful, um, both in terms of the stuff online to, to books to kind of academic, you know, research that is kind of digging into the topic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of, of online, I really would, even though uh, I am biased, I would recommend checking out (laughs) Waging Nonviolence.
1: It's a great website, (laughs) lots of good articles, yeah.
2: Um, In terms of books, um, there have been a lot of great books. I I would recommend um, Mark and and Paul Engler's book, This is an Uprising. I think that is one of the the best introductions to the topic um, for folks that maybe are are just coming around to this. There's also a guide that came out a few years ago called Beautiful Trouble, um, which is kind of a handbook of different um, kind of principles, uh, strategies, tactics, and actions and and kind of groups um, that, you know, where each chapter is just a couple pages long and you get like kind of very concise um, explanations for these things. So it's a great kind of also introductory resource. And yeah, there's there's just so much out there. It's hard to say. I, I also really, it's a bit wonky, um, uh, but I, I really enjoyed um, Erica Chenoweth and, and Maria Steffen's book, Why Civil Resistance Works,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which has a very kind of data kind of orientation and kind of looks at the history of of nonviolent and violent movements over the last hundred years, and and kind of crunches the numbers about um, you know their effectiveness, and puts forward I think a pretty compelling argument for why um, nonviolent movements have been more successful um, over history than um, uh, than violent movements. Kind of drawing from their their kind of massive database of of, of movements, so. Yeah, those are some of the resources that I would recommend.
1: Ah, yeah, Well, that's a great place for people to start. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, we've been recording for about 50 minutes now. Should we maybe wrap it up? Because um, I think that sort of moves us right into uh, what's inspiring you right now, Eric.
2: Yeah, I, despite how bleak things can seem, uh, especially if you're paying attention just to the kind of mainstream media, I think there are reasons to be hopeful and to feel inspiration right now. Um, I mean, in general, I feel like I've been really impressed and inspired by the response to Trump's election, that I was worried that there wouldn't be the reaction that there has been, and that, you know, so many people are are getting involved for the first time and experimenting with protest and nonviolent action. And it's hard to say where it's going, but the idea that there's just so, there are so many people that are newly engaged and newly open to this and and taking some real risk uh, to try to stop some of these terrible policies and proposals that the administration is putting forward. I have I, just been surprised and, and inspired by them, one group being, uh, you know, the, the dreamers, you know, and these young undocumented folks who um, have really put their bodies on the line time and time again to um, to try to kind of protect all, all immigrants and all undocumented people in this country. And, and you know, despite this recent news that they're working to roll back um, their protection, they didn't kind of cower. You know, they they immediately took to the streets and were arrested again and are building, I think, a really powerful movement to uh, kind of push back. And and uh, yeah, I find, I find real inspiration in that. And also, you know, in, in for example, the struggle around health care, you know, that um, to think about the fact that that Trump had said kind of on day one that he would repeal, you know, the Ob- Obamacare. And here we are, you know, it's it's still on the books. And people have actually taken the initiative now to really not only defend Obamacare, but to push for something better. And that there's kind of more momentum around the idea of universal health care than there's ever been is, mm. is incredible, you know, and, and inspiring. So um, I feel like in a lot of ways, you know, people are stepping up to to the moment right now in a way that is 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 really encouraging, and um, excited to see where it's it's going.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I resonate with a lot of that. So, <laughs> and Rebecca, what about you? What's nourishing you right now?
1: Well, um, you know, what's it's interesting. I've been really uh, reminded recently of the value of sort of rituals as uh, really embodied um symbolic practices that they have value it's easy I think to think that um everything happens like in the head or in the mind like you know if I read this book like I can like get the answers or if I um if I just do enough meditative practices or something I'll find peace which those are all great things but um I've been recently making daily sort of offerings to the earth, basically, um, just to try to strengthen that connection with the natural environment. And I've also been going, I'm making it a point to go to church and have Eucharist once a week, which is something I hadn't really done in a long time. And it's been really grounding and stabilizing for me. So that's what's nourishing me. What about you, Chelsea? Um, Well, in preparing for this episode, I
0: actually uh, came across um, some of the daily meditations from Richard Rohr. He sends something out every day, um, and he usually sort of focuses on something for an entire week. And so the week of... Um, September 17th through September 22nd, he wrote all about nonviolence and, um, and I just was really inspired by a lot of what he said. Um, one thing is, um, our future is either nonviolent or there is no future at all. The root of violence is the illusion of separation from God, from being itself, from being one with everyone and everything. Um, for his Tuesday meditation, he said, "If we do not recognize the roots of violence at the first and hidden structural level, which is the world, we will waste time focusing exclusively on the second and individual level, the flesh, and we will seldom see our real devils, who are always disguised as angels of light, um, which he calls the devil. Um, it, you know, it's based in it's a Christian framework, um, and so he mentions Jesus a lot as a as a." example of nonviolence but there were some really powerful sentences in there other than the ones i just read so um which you can find at cac.org
1: cool and we'll have links to uh that and the resources that eric mentioned uh in our show notes on our website at listen to Thank you so much, Eric, for being with us today and
0: illuminating nonviolence for us. Yeah, thank you. It's been a really great conversation.
2: Likewise. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. All right. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. If you want to hear more episodes on spirituality and activism, check out listentotherising.com. And even better, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time on The Rising.